using uh, the Bible provided by the church. Page 1246. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. A haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she is given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. They turn back to Galatians. Uh, page 1172, if you're using the Church Bible, Galatians 5 and verse 19, page 1172, Paul writing to believers, the church at churches of Galatia, um, reminds them of that um, sinful nature that is still with them, uh, that predominates in the unbeliever. That is being crucified in the believer and then producing um, the fruit of the Spirit in its place. Galatians 5 verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions 
and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Amen. I would ask the boys and girls to come uh, to the We're turning now in our book of praise to page 342. Psalm 139 is a vitally important part of Scripture. When it comes to our feeble attempts to understand God in his being, his power, his glory, his majesty and his dominion. It's one of those passages that we should turn to often and seek to pray into our lives. Our great need is to know God. And to know ourselves. And this psalm helps us to do both. To know God and to know ourselves. In our past three studies, our previous three studies, we have come face to face with God in his all-encompassing knowledge. He is omniscient or all-knowing. Verses 1 to 6. We have come face to face with God in his all-controlling presence. Verses 7 to 12. He is omnipresent. And then we have come face to face with God in his all-controlling power. Verses 13 to 18. He is omnipotent. There is nothing that God cannot do that is consistent with his glory and his purpose. And this morning we come to verses 19 to 24, where David concludes uh, by writing now, I believe, about God's all-consuming righteousness or holiness. God's all-consuming righteousness. God is not only omniscient, not only omnipresent, not only omnipotent, but he is omni-righteous. All righteousness exists in him and flows from him. And righteousness will be established by him in his universe once again and forever. In the earlier three sections of the psalm, David focuses on each attribute of God in relation to himself. And so in the opening section, David says, you have searched me and known me. In the second section, he says, where can I flee from your presence? In the third section, he has said, you have formed my inward parts. 
You saw my substance. And now in verses 19 to 24, uh, David doesn't set out to persuade us uh, of the attribute of God's holiness or righteousness. Rather, it is all application. It is all application to life as he, David, understands it and experiences it. Life in the world. We would say life in the church and then life at a personal level. And as we look at this uh, closing section this morning, there are three things that we want to note. First of all, David's appeal to God or David's appeal to the Lord. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. That is his appeal to God. If we want to put it in the positive, David is saying, in effect, display your righteousness. Your holiness, O God. Your all-consuming holiness. And when you do that, you will certainly slay the wicked. To many today, this is an outrageous request that David makes. Who in the right mind, who that would claim to be a follower of God, we are told, would say, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. That is precisely what David does. And David is not alone in this. And David is not in the wrong in saying this. Yes, today David's appeal to God is written off as ethics of a sub-Christian level. To use a phrase by the great Old Testament preacher E.J. Young. Seen as ethics of a sub-Christian level. Not for our era. That was okay in the days of the Old Testament when they didn't know any better. We have advanced beyond that. And we want none of it. Whereas the plain fact is. That those who say such things. Have a defective view of God. And they have a defective view. Of humanity. Including themselves. Let me illustrate that. They have a defective understanding of God. In that if God is all-knowing, then he knows everything about unredeemed humanity. As well as knowing everything about you and me and others who are redeemed humanity. He knows absolutely their actions. 
and our actions. Their emotions and our emotions. Their thoughts and our thoughts. Their words and his words. And you see in his holiness. God cannot ignore what he knows perfectly. About humanity. But then also if God is all present. The wicked cannot escape his reach. Yes, people like bin Laden, when he's being pursued by um, his uh, pursuers, he will hide in a gully trying to escape them. But before God, a God who is all-knowing, a God who is all-present, the wicked cannot escape his reach. They can never go beyond the long arm of the divine presence. And so, then if God is all-powerful, as we have seen, he is over the wicked. They are in his hand. He is able to destroy them. Indeed, the enemies of God must be destroyed or they will destroy the work of God. To quote E.J. Young again, the enemies of God must be destroyed else they will destroy the work of God. Isn't that their great purpose? And so this is not an outrageous sub Christian ethic in the light of who God is. So not only do they have a defective view of God, these people who criticize this verse and say we can't um, countenance that today, they also have a defective view of humanity, including themselves. They believe, they make the fundamental mistake of believing that humanity at heart is good and indeed getting better. Scripture teaches, experience proves humanity is desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. And that's not just an Old Testament teaching. It's the teaching of our Saviour also. Mark chapter 7 verses 21 and 22. Out of the heart comes all manner of evil. The Apostle Paul, whom we read this morning, Galatians chapter 5, says the same sort of things as Jesus about the sinful nature. Verses 19 to 21. The Apostle Paul having uh, in chapters 1 and 2 of Romans, thought about the Jews, first of all, and then about the Gentiles, next. What did he say? There is no one righteous. No, not one. And he goes on then to, to uh, elaborate on the, the acts and the words of sinful humanity. And so... Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. 
It's not sub-Christian. It is um, uh, necessary in the light of who God is. And it is necessary in the light of who you, who humanity, sinful humanity is, or what sinful humanity is. Look at David's explanation for his appeal to God. Look at what he goes on to say in the verses. Uh, verse 19, the second part of it. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. He could look around him and he could see men who were shedding blood, innocent blood. And so David appeals to God. Slay the slayer. Isn't that what we find in Genesis after Cain kills Abel? God holds him and calls Cain to account. Then look at verse 20. They speak against you wickedly. See here's the mark of unredeemed humanity. Speaking wickedly against God. Those who deny God exists, what are they doing? They're speaking wickedly. Those who advocate a multi-faith society, all gods are equal, what are they doing? They're speaking wickedly. Those who advocate that we worship God, or we can worship God using images, what are they doing? They're speaking wickedly. Those who promote same-sex marriage, what are they doing? They're speaking wickedly against God. Those who campaign for abortion or euthanasia to be legalized, what are they doing? They speak against God wickedly. And David labels all such as your enemies. Verse 20. Your enemies. All who who interpret Jesus' life and death as something other than a sacrifice to pay the price for my sin and to turn away the wrath of God from us, they speak wickedly. And so David's appeal then to God. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. You and I who worship God in and through Christ, we cannot shy away from these words. We cannot hide from this thought. We cannot avoid at times praying this prayer. We've got to realize righteousness and wickedness cannot coexist. Light has no fellowship with darkness. And so there will be times in our prayers and we will pray with David. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. That's his appeal. But then secondly, let's notice his assertion. His assertion before God. His assertion before God. Verses 21 and 22. 
Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. Again, if we want to state it positively, what's David saying? Not only that I hate wickedness and evildoers, but I love righteousness and those who do righteously. I love your righteousness, O God. The Hebrew word hate occurs four times in the space of ten words. Four times. Four out of the ten words here are the word hate. Three times as a verb and then once as a noun. It's a very, very strong word. We who are parents or you who are grandparents correct children for using it. When they say such things as I hate Mary or I hate my teacher or perhaps in your presence you hear them saying to a friend I hate you and we say to them you must not use the word hate in that way and we suggest to them milder alternatives which uh, are legitimate and which uh, express how they're thinking, how they're feeling. I don't like. I don't enjoy French. I don't get along with my teacher. But here, David, the child of God. Remember, this is the man after God's own heart. He makes one of the strongest statements that you or I will find anywhere in the Bible. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Is he right to do so? Is David out of control? Has he lost it? Is he beyond the acceptable boundaries of speech for a child of God? Some would say, is he not betraying and contradicting the words of Jesus on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Well, the Bible never contradicts itself. And when people come up with passages that they say contradict them, each other, the key thing always is to consider the context. The context, context, context is all important. And the context here is David is not dealing with his personal enemies. It isn't that David has had a fallout with his neighbour. Or with a, someone in his family. Scripture is absolutely clear. What we are to do with our enemies. Our individual enemies. 
family members, work colleagues, individual unbelievers who oppose us by their words and in their attitudes and in their actions. We are to love our enemies. Indeed, we're to go further. We're to bless those who curse us. We're to do good to those who hate us. You're to pray for those who take advantage of you in your workplace or in school, boys and girls, or in your neighbourhood. And what's more, you're to do good to them every time you have an opportunity. So boys and girls, here you are walking down the corridor and it's someone who gives you a really hard time that's walking in front of you. And they drop their mobile phone. And it's right there at your toe. They don't realise they've dropped it. There's so many people going through the corridor. So much noise. What are you to do? You probably want to lift your toe. And kick it. Or else lift your heel. And smash it down as hard as you can upon it. But instead you're to reach down your hand and you're to lift it up and you're to tap that person on their shoulder and say, Mary, you've dropped your phone. That's doing good. That's doing good. That's how we're to treat the person that is against us. And David himself is a striking example of that. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And who was his greatest enemy? Saul. Saul hunted him like a wild animal. David had to spend nights and months out in the open countryside. Where he was hungry and cold and lonely and all kinds of negative experiences. Because of Saul. And yet David would not touch Saul when he had the opportunity to do so. Why not? Because he saw him as the one that God had appointed over Israel. But even more than that, David went further. When God had dealt with Saul in his time, what did David do when his throne was established? He said, is there anyone left of Saul's house to whom I can show kindness? And we have that beautiful, beautiful example of 2 Samuel chapter 9, where David brings Mephibosheth, the lame son, into the palace has him eat at the king's table. In other words, every day of the rest of his life, David is reminded of his great enemy. And he shows love to the great enemy that's dead as he deals kindly with Mephibosheth. So we can be absolutely clear. There's no contradiction in Scripture. There's nothing ambiguous. My personal enemies, your personal enemies, Matthew chapter 5, 
43-44 is the standard by which we are to live. Or as you saw recently in First Peter, we're to heap coals of burning fire. Maybe that's Second Peter. It's Peter in any case on their head. But you see, David, let's go back to David again for a moment. When it comes to Goliath. When it comes to Goliath. What does David do with Goliath? Well, he lifts five small stones out of the brook. And he goes against him in the name of the Lord. And he swings his sling. And boys and girls, he lodges the stone there in his forehead. The only place where his armour didn't cover Goliath. And then he takes his sword and he cuts off, or takes Goliath's sword and cuts off Goliath's head. Is David a man of contradictions? Is this man blow hot towards the Lord one day and as cold as ice the next day? The next day? Now when you read 1 Samuel chapter 17, you see what the issue is. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies not of Israel? Not of Saul, not of David, but of the living God. The Philistines are the avowed enemies of God and of God's church in the Old Testament. And they are out to destroy the cause of God. They're out to wipe out the people of God. And so David not only slew the Philistine, but of those Philistines he was able to say, Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. And to drive this home beyond any doubt, let's notice the two little phrases that underline the fact that David does not even view his personal enemies. Look at verse 20, where he says, your enemies. And then he says, verse 22, I count them my enemies. And here's the great reality. Those in our world who set themselves up as the enemies of God, the enemies of the gospel of Christ, the enemies of righteousness and truth, they are my enemies. They are your enemies. They are our enemies. And we have got to be able to say about them as a group, I hate them. I hate them. With a perfect Hatred. Because God hates his enemies. And so David's hatred is to be commended. It is to be copied. But with great care. The same care as he exercised. And sadly, often in Northern Ireland, evangelical Christianity, we don't get and we don't see this kind of high 
ground being shown on which people express their hatred towards um, policies and people and politicians and those in power. Our hatred can only be of God's enemies, not our personal enemies. And so parents, we teach our children not to use the word hate or to speak of hatred carelessly. But we also need to teach them to hate and to use the word hatred carefully and biblically and righteously. And notice here that David gives no place to that slick distinction that sometimes we hear in evangelical Christianity, you hate the evil and you love the evildoers. Evil and evildoers cannot be separated. Because the evil comes from inside the person, Jesus said, out of the heart. And so they are an entity. We're, of course, of living in a society now where we have, in criminal law, such is the tragedy of hatred, wrong hatred in our society, that there is a crime which is called hate crime. It's a sad day when we have to legislate to say that we are to love those who are politically different from us. Those who come from a different culture. Those who speak a different language. And that we should not use or think in terms of hatred towards those. But that law goes too far. If it forbids Christians to hate what God hates. And to speak out against what God speaks out against. Let's notice then thirdly. David's petition of God or of the Lord. We're coming now to verses 23 to 24. David's petition of the Lord. And this is the, this is the shorter and the easier to understand, but let me say, equally difficult to do in a God-honouring way. Look at where David comes now in verses 23 and 24. He comes back to himself in the closing verses. He cannot contemplate the wicked, the enemies of God, in an abstract manner or in isolation from himself. Because by birth and by nature, David was wicked. I was born in sin, shapen by iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. And the only reason why David can 
make this appeal to God and make this assertion before God is because of the grace of God that has flown into his life in salvation that has dealt with his old nature and has made him a new creation that has created within him a clean heart and renewed a right spirit. But you see, David knows that even though that has happened, there is wickedness that resides and remains in his own heart and life. We've got to realise that while our sin of the past is forgiven by Christ, our old nature is not extracted from us like tonsils being taken out or an appendix cut away. The old nature is not cut out at conversion. Rather, a new nature is planted at conversion or in regeneration and expresses itself in conversion. And so that's why Paul talks about the battle between the old nature that comes from Adam, the new nature that comes from Christ. And David is very conscious of that tension, I believe. If we go back to verse 19, where David says, Depart from me, you bloodthirsty men. Was David a child of God, not a bloodthirsty man at one point in his life? When he arranged the death of Uriah on the battlefield, the husband of the woman that he committed adultery with, and he arranged it all so that he could marry her and cover up his sin. If you look at the words of verse 21, had not David risen up against the Lord in adultery? And if you look at the verse 21, as well, uh, had not David within his own family a son Absalom, who was wicked, who took God's name in vain, who was a bloodthirsty man? You see, this is a very costly position for David to take. To appeal to God, slay the wicked, to assert to God, do I not loathe, do I not hate evildoers. It's a very costly thing. And so David, in the light of his remaining wickedness in his own heart, though he's a saved man, and in the light of the wickedness of his own house, though it's a covenant household, he prays, search me, O God. He says, I want you to put that spotlight of your spirit and your word To shine it upon my life with all its illuminating intensity. So that you see right into the depths of my heart. I want you to try me and know my thoughts. It's a very detailed examination. It's like what um, a scientist would do under a microscope or or, or a... Uh, Using a telescope, if he was looking at the heavens, or a microscope, if he was looking at something small. 
And then look at what he says. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. It could be translated two ways. And lead me in the ancient way. And lead me in the everlasting way. That's the way, the ancient way is the way of Abraham. The way of Abel, the way of salvation. That's also the everlasting way. And you see, here's where David comes to. As he has made his appeal to God and his assertion before God, David knows that that ultimately stands or falls on verses 23 and 24. What God finds in him. If David is continually asking the Lord to deal with his remaining wickedness, if he hates evil in his own heart, he can make this appeal to God. Slay the wicked. He can make this assertion before God. Do I not hate those who hate you? And you see where it comes to. With you and me. You and I are only able. To appeal to God. Slay the wicked. To assert before God. I hate those who hate you. When we're honest with God, with one another, about our remaining sins. And perhaps that is the reason, another reason why we draw back from praying this prayer of David, or making this appeal of David before God, and this assertion. Because, not just because of the world out there which doesn't like it. But because of our own hearts. And our own lives which says, well what about you? Are you slaying the wicked? Ness in your own heart? Are you hating the wickedness in your own life? You see... The omni-righteousness of God ultimately has got to be seen in my life and your life. Otherwise, what are we? We're hypocrites. Hypocrites. The sight of God and in the eyes of the world. And so we need again to go to the man who was and is omni-righteous. Jesus Christ. And we can never move away from being anchored in him day by day. Coming to him day by day. Confessing our sin day by day. Putting to death our sin day by day. Producing the fruit of the Spirit day by day. Because when that is happening, 
than the righteousness of God. The righteousness that Christ had in his earthly life will become increasingly your righteousness and my righteousness. And we will find ourselves not having to force ourselves to pray these things. But we will naturally pray them because we're becoming more and more like God in our character, in our speech, and in our conduct. And so, his omni-righteousness, is it increasingly my righteousness, your righteousness? We've got to pray, search me, O God. And then we will be able to appeal to God, slay the wicked. We'll be able to assert before God. That we hate wickedness within and wickedness without. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father in heaven, we thank you for the man Jesus in whom all righteousness was found in thought, in word, and in deed. And we thank you that he offered up his righteous life for unrighteous ones, for evildoers, for sinners, like David, and like us, and like those in our family, in our workplace, in our neighbourhood, in our town. O God, we ask that we would pursue righteousness in our own hearts, in our own lives. That we would never shy away from the searchlight of your spirit and your word. That we would never be one thing and say another thing. Otherwise we betray you and we betray ourselves. Have mercy upon us, O God. Make us like Christ. And then, O God, give us that burning zeal for your name that wants to see your righteousness displayed uh, in the world and to the ends of the earth. And when it is displayed, it will mean that the wicked will be slain. And it will mean that those who are evildoers will be cast out from your presence and from your people. O God, make us what we're not yet. Make us more and more in this year what we ought to be to your praise and your glory. We pray that as the ungodly see your righteousness in us more and more, that they would see its beauty, its loveliness, that they would be drawn to Christ, the righteous Saviour. In Jesus' name, Amen.